Welcome back to Life in Bloom, a podcast brought to you by the Bloom Africa. This is part two of my interview with two-time New York Times bestselling author, Lovey Ajayi Jones. All right. So Lovey, you come, um, you decide that you're going to <laughs> quit this job after one day. <laughs> <laughs> and you sent an email to this effect saying thank you for my first and last day. I don't even yeah. I don't even know if they paid you for that one day. I'm not going you know to the, the company might even still owe me money. Let me actually check. <laughs> <laughs> the audacity. The audacity. The auda- Can you imagine? Honestly. So okay, so then what happens after that? What's what's the journey after that? So now it's just you yourself and myself. And yourself. Yeah. And myself. So that was end of 2011. And I was like, okay, I definitely got to work for myself. But I wasn't still calling myself a writer. Right? Like, Mm. February 2012, I ended up doing press coverage at the Academy Awards. How did that happen? A producer in Hollywood who reads my blog reached out to me and was like, I love your work. You should come do press coverage at the Academy Awards. I said... I didn't even know that was an option for me. She was like, yeah, we can get you credentialed. I get credentialed to do this press on the red carpet and backstage. I remember that. You were dressed so cute. I remember that. I still have, I still have that dress. I still have yeah. that dress. Yeah. It's fire. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. is Most most like journalists who do press coverage at the Academy Awards, they leave after the red carpet. Like They carry and go. They don't get to come inside. Right. I had also backstage access. Oh, excuse us. Excuse us. So I'm backstage and backstage at the Oscars is like four or five major rooms, big rooms. One room is the first room where they come when they win. Mm -hmm. There's press there asking them questions. There's a second room that is like them taking all these photos. There's another room that is just for press to be able to sit in five stories yeah yeah right everybody's like on their computers just logging stuff there's another room after that that's like a flow through room Mm -hmm. but here's the thing is most journalists have like deadlines because they have to file these stories oh my god somebody won it has to go on the website me I'm there just live tweeting and whatnot I'm just like (laughs) girl live tweeting my day I ain't got no requirements I'm just over here like living my best life right Eating Wolfgang Puck shrimp and chocolates because you know Wolfgang Puck catered. So I'm just stuffing my face with shrimp. <laughs> just a bush girl. Araukonye. Serious Araukon. Bush pest scene. When I tell you, I wasn't tweeting nothing. I was over there chasing chasing the food cart. Because so, I just want no, I just want to pause this because I just I just want to insert this. Cause this, this, this interview is, I just, I, there's some things I got to put out there. Cause Lovey got access into, um, a lounge, a VIP lounge. Um, I guess on a particular airline, I forget which one. And this girl, <laughs> this girl packed, are you people listening? She packed food from home. I don't know if it was jollof rice, rice and stew. Was, I don't recall. Yeah, it was one of those. She, she took it to the lounge. At the airport, y'all, and that's and I just want to put that. That's why I called her Araoko because this is not it's not, it's not something new. It's not foreign. This is what she no. does: is yes. to go to places that are classy 
and then be very Nigerian. But go on. Correct. Uh-huh. Absolutely, absolutely correct. In fact, that's what I am. That's what I do. I must bring it in the room. So I'm in there eating all the shrimp. I get a text message from my sister and she goes, hey, mom just called me and said that she hasn't seen a tweet from you in 30 minutes. See, my mouth just dropping. My mom called my sister to tell her that she hadn't seen a tweet from me. In 30 minutes. First of all, I said, this woman knows Twitter exists. I was like, who taught her about Twitter? That was She's one. Watching. Yeah. She was watching. And I was like, holy smokes. I, and I feel like it was like the first moment in my career that I was like, wow. So my mom considers my work actually work. Work. She's paying attention. Yeah. She's paying attention. And then just being in this freaking room with all these people who are like supported by outlets, multi-million dollar outlets. And here I am is awesomely lovey. And I'm in the same room as them. And it was another one of those moments that was like, okay, this is telling me the thing that I wasn't trying to accept before. You are a writer. Your words got you in this room. You know, you are a writer. You are, you can call yourself that and be rightfully. Yeah. You, you have the right. So I feel like that weekend was another one that was like a clear moment that was mindset shift. That was a sign that I was doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing. And Mm. I had to own it. Mm. I had to own it. I had no, I was out of excuses to not call myself a writer. I was Mm. out of excuses to not call myself an entrepreneur. I was, I basically, I was like out of excuses to like play small. So why do we do that? Because, you know, I, um, I want to talk about that a little bit. And I know we take, you know, my dad calls us bird walking where we just sort of, you know, mm. we're going somewhere, but we're going to meander just a little bit and walk the birds. Um, is that thing that you said is so important right now? Because I remember still telling someone recently that even with the Bloom Africa, I continue to call it a passion project and, mm-hmm. and, and I call it a pet, I call it a pet project. Um, and it wasn't until I started to sort of like question myself because people would ask me things and I'll tell you what is happening, lovey, is that sometimes my friends will say, you don't charge enough for your events. Sometimes your events are completely free. You know, you could be making money off of this. And I'm like, um, no, I don't, you know, like, why? It's just something, it's just a little pet project I'm doing. And, uh, and then as I started to kind of dismantle it, I realized that part of it is that I myself have not yet accepted that what I am doing has this potential, right? So it goes back again to sort of, it's easier to think of worst case scenario than best cases. So for me, I'm like, if I just kind of stay neutral in the, you know, so not worst case, not best, you know, but we're just, I'm just doing this as I feel like it. I don't, I don't feel the pressure. I'm comfortable. I can continue to play small. I don't have to think of anything to generate revenue. I don't have to have a whole business model. I could just keep doing it the way I feel and the way I like. And I've been confronting myself on that a lot recently because I'm like, what is it, Tosin? Is it really truly that you believe this is just a passion project, which, you know, it's fine if you do, or do you know that it's because you are buying yourself time and you have not yet accepted that this could be more? Um, and so when you said what you said just now, some it, tri- it was a trigger, you triggered me. And so I'm like, I don't know what it is. I, I've never seen myself as an entrepreneur. I don't refer to myself mm-hmm. as that. Because I, that's not what I set out to. I'm, I didn't, I'm not trying to be an entrepreneur. 
you know, but as this continues to just, and it's been over a year and a half now since I launched the Bloom Africa. And I just take these little baby steps and I look at it and I'm like, oh, look at that. I did some, some of this kind of cute. And then, <laughs> and then, but I never push it beyond that because I am not ready to call myself an entrepreneur. And if I did, that would mean that it would mean something completely different. So yep. you're buying yourself time. That's accurate. That's what you're doing is you're buying yourself time because you're like, I'm not ready to fail hmm. because you're thinking the worst case scenario is going to fail. Right. It's not a pet project. I've been to Bloom Africa event. The thing is fire. So you are currently afraid of owning it because owning it now means that you could fail at it. When before you can just be like, yeah, it's my pet project. You, 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 you don't want to tie skin to the game. But until you put skin in the game, it won't bloom in the way it needs to bloom. Okay. You know, we're just, you just, okay. See, this one, he was supposed to be like, this is an interview. <laughs> and here she is snatching my edges. I told y'all this is what she does. Like I just, I'll ask her one question and then she reads me. And in the process is coaching because I hear you. I do. Mm-hmm. You, you call, you call, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to argue that with you. I go to therapy. Mm-hmm. I know, I, I know when to accept the truth. A lot of know. it is imposter syndrome. A lot of it is imposter syndrome that we deal with. A lot of it is, um, you experience that? Oh, absolutely. But see, imposter syndrome looks different. In, mm. Like it looks, imposter syndrome takes different forms. So mm. like it shifts with time. So the imposter syndrome you have now is not the same imposter syndrome from five years ago. And it won't be the same in five years. So imposter syndrome shifts. It starts looking very different. For me, imposter syndrome doesn't look like, oh, I don't belong in that room. No, my imposter syndrome shows up as charge that person premium because you're giving them premium value. Hmm. So for me, it shows up as I have a hard time charging individuals. Right. I don't have a hard time charging companies. I'll charge them all day. But when it comes to like a one-on-one thing, I have a hard time charging for those. So my imposter syndrome looks like, why can't I just give it all away for free to people? (laughs) Um, So yeah, that, that, that is funny enough. Like my team called me out on it this week because we're working on something that I'm really excited about that we're launching in a month. Okay. Okay. And it's something that I would pay premium for if somebody offered it to me. Right. So I was talking to my team about pricing and the price that I said, my whole team of six other women were like, no, that's Hmm. too low. And I was like, really? They're like, that is too low, way too low. We need to double that for what we're going to charge for people. And I was like, oh my God. And they were like, so tell me more about this thing. And it was so funny. They called me out on it. And I was like, yeah, that's interesting. It's my version of imposter syndrome. It's I don't want to charge people too much, but I'm fine charging companies a lot. So I got to work through it. But I, yeah. You, Lovey, you said it because I talk and I coach people in negotiation all the time. You wouldn't know that because I've come to you when it's time <laughs> to negotiate for things that I feel like, but I don't have a degree in this and what really qualified, like I can do it, but I don't feel like I should charge premium for it versus Mm -hmm. when I'm negotiating a salary at a company that's trying to hire me, I'm going for broke. We're doing two, three rounds. 
And I'm not taking, like, I know you have the money and you will pay me what I, you know, what's due to me. And that's always, I'm going to get all the benefits, all the perks, you know, like that's, I'm very cutthroat when it comes to like negotiating my salary around my jobs. But when it comes to, just like you said, the Boom Africa, I remember this retreat that I had earlier this year. I could not even advertise for it because I was stuck in an an analysis paralysis, just trying to figure out how much to charge individuals. And I felt like I was charging way too much. It wasn't until the retreat itself that the women that actually came and paid were like, I'm sorry, why did you charge so little? Um, because and I was looking at them because that's really not where I thought the feedback was going to come from. I thought it would come from people that did. I mean, if I got a good deal, I wouldn't go to the person and be like, why did you charge me so little? But they were just so stunned at how they were like, you had us in a hotel, the room, how many meals you had drinks, you had like what? And then yeah. the whole coaching session. And then you charged us this. They were like, we pay double. And I was like, what? You would? You know, and so when we talk about imposter syndrome showing up in different ways, I think you are right. And it's about how we confront that. And I think part of it that I have found is it's always helpful to be aware of it. And two, to realize that it never, I I don't know anyone who's been able to tell me that they don't have it at all. So I'm coming to the realization that it stays with you, just like fair in a way. It stays with you, but the antidote is to just always push back against it and to listen to the feedback. Yeah. And that's what makes it sort of lose its power. It weakens that voice in your head, you know? And so that's what I've been finding out is, you know, after I speak to you, you're like, Tosin, you're going to charge them double. I'm like, all right, then I'm going to stay with my chest. And then I say it and with my my whole chest. And then all of a sudden they didn't even blink. So I'm like, ah, they didn't even blink. So that means what I charged before was literally pennies in the bucket. Am I mad? So the next thing you know, next time now you can open your mouth and actually just say it, right? But it's working through that. So I'm I'm just glad that you um you brought that up. You became an entrepreneur against your own like you that wasn't what you had imagined when you set out, but here you are. Yeah. And um, you are at the Oscars backstage. And yeah, that was a a mind shift moment for you. What came after that? Because I feel like the story gets gets super interesting. It's been interesting, but I feel like all kinds of things started happening after this, if my memory serves me correctly. Yeah. All the things I was afraid of in terms of calling myself a writer, because I was like, I mean, how do writers make money if they're not writing books all the time, like Toni Morrison? All the things I was afraid of went out the way. Like I got offered two columns in magazines, all these different like brands would come to me and be like, we love the work that you do. We love how you use words. Let's tell a good story together with an ambassadorship. It basically was like the universe was like, Auntie, I've been waiting for you the whole time to just accept this thing. Cause I was going to open these doors, but you had to accept it. Right. To be able to walk through it. So it was such a call, like such an important moment because literally like I, all the things I was afraid of, of like, what does it look like for somebody to make a decent living as a writer, as just like themselves? Speaking of engagements, I got pitched those. 2014, I got approached by a book agent. It was like October, 2014. I got the idea for book one, August, 2014. After some journalist, quotation marks, like took three paragraphs of my work and didn't, um, and did not give me props for it. Wow. And 
basically. Plagiarize my stuff. And Mm -hmm. I was like, is there not a limited edition handbook on how not to be terrible at being a human? And I instantly was like, ooh, that's the book I need to write. Randomly, book agent hits me up October 2014. I write my book proposal January 2015. We send it out to editors February 2015. I have my book deal March 2015 for I'm Judging You the Do Better Manual. And I wrote that book in five months, turned it in October, 2016. Yes. I wrote my first book in five months. Um, Were you confident throughout that process? Cause I, I I saw, you know, I, I saw your post a while ago where you talked about how hard it is to be an author where you don't, and again, connecting the dots about trusting that inner voice, but you talked about how the process can challenge that inner voice, right? Cause you write, yeah. And you're like, is this as good as I think it is? Is this good? Exactly. And so yeah. I'm sure you have people that you get feedback from that are able to, or maybe you just did it as Lovey does and you just knew it was but a I good book. Get, I don't, I don't know. typically get feedback in the middle of the writing itself. Like I don't typically, uh-huh. ah, like I don't I write a chapter and send it to somebody, write one chapter, send it to somebody. I want to oh. finish and then get feedback after that. Because if uh, I'm constantly getting feedback while writing, I won't finish writing. Distractions, like you said earlier, too much feedback. Take yeah. the feedback after you're done writing so you can yeah. have something to now work on as opposed to taking feedback as you're writing. So honestly, I didn't know whether it was good, great, whatever. I was just like, all I got to do is put these words on paper and not deal with the feedback because I have editors and I have people's input. And I'll do deal with that after the fact. So... Yeah, like over those five months, I think I went. I wrote it in five different continents, across like seven countries. Because I was also what? traveling like crazy. I was traveling like crazy. I was. That's when, I, and it was the year that I was doing like a lot of solo traveling. So I was in Egypt, Thailand, Dubai. I was in Mexico. I did a lot of solo traveling that year, and was writing my book in airports and hotels on the beach. Like I just knew I have this deadline that is in my contract. I got to make that deadline. And I made my deadline. Um, And it was just like, I mean, the book basically, I feel like the book almost wrote itself. Um, And, but you know, one thing that I do with my books that I realize is now a pattern because I did it again with book two, I'll sit there and be lollygagging. I'll be like, yeah, my deadline is in two months. I should probably write a bit more. (laughs) I wrote, 11 chapters of book one in three weeks. And the what? last four was due. Did you sleep? Or was it just pouring out? Apparently I did. Like I, I, I basically procrastinated up until when I was like, e, I still need to write 11 chapters because I found a Facebook memory where I yeah. said, I, I just wrote 11 chapters in 14 days. It's something crazy like that. For book two, I was lollygagging. Quarantine happened. In February, I had maybe 25,000 words in February. March, I lollygagged for a lot of it. I barely wrote. April, because my, my this thing was due in May. Yep, it was due in May. April, I still had 40,000 words, which was really only like half of it. Girl... 12 days to my deadline, I wrote 30,000 words, which was the whole, a whole third of the book. In 12 why do days. we behave like, why do we behave like this? Why you know, I, it's procrastination is one of my 
best tools. And I've, I've read many things that drag those of us that know it's, they said it's a form of self-sabotage. <laughs> I was like, cause I wait. And but that, that, that when I am against the wall is when I then start to pour out. And that's when Same. I'm like, oh, you can't give me too much room to play with. Cause that's, I, I, I'll take advantage, you know? And so I, I understand. And I definitely feel you on, on, on that. That's me. Tell me, what was your feeling when you turned in book one? Like, what did you, did you feel <sighs> that it was going to be a New York times bestseller? Like, cause talking about imposter syndrome, you know, you finally get to the point where you can call yourself a writer and then this is your first book. And the thing with creatives is that when you share your gift with the world, I feel that it's probably one of the most nerve wracking things that one can do because now you have to wait and see. And everybody gets to judge and write reviews and tell you how well you did. I mean, how, how did you handle that? I mean, obviously it ended up pretty, you know, it's like great. It's a great story. New York Times best. But before you knew that it was going to be that, did you know? Or were you just like, well, I've put it out there and now I'm going to hide and hope for the best. You know, how, how did you process that whole journey? I was committed to doing whatever I could to make this New York Times bestseller. But the first thing I could do was write the book that I was proud of. So I remember when I finished it, it was October 15th. So my contract said this book was due in my editor's hands, first draft, October 15th, 2015, by close of business day. Right. I turned it in at 4.45 p.m. (laughs) 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 And I jumped on the bed. I remember literally pressing send and jumping on the bed and being like, I did it. Yeah, it's out. It is out of my hands. I've done the first draft. The first draft is really, that is the beginning of the process, not really even the end. But I remember right. jumping on the bed in glee and being like, score. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it felt good. It was like, and my editor was like, all right, I'll get back to you in a month. So I had yeah. one month to just, Get my brain back. Not, the, not uh-huh. so this time. This time it was. It, it's not. I don't have any one month time to get my brain back. My editor is not yeah. messing around this time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you put it out, and then you wait. First of all, first of all, I put it out with the intention of having the book hit the times list because. So you read, this was your intention. You you were not. This was not. You were not trying to play small with this. This was not a. I hope it. Hits, I hope it hits people's radars. I hope they pick it up. It was like, no, this is going to become a New York. That's how you went into it. The reason why is because when I even went out with my book proposal, at that point, there were not a lot of Black women essay books that were prominent. Issa's, mm-hmm. so in, in every book proposal, you have to put a um, comparative title section, which is books that are written by peers or with similar tone or with mm-hmm. similar topic. Basically, what books are similar to this that have done well? Mm-hmm. And I remember I couldn't put any black women books in it mm-hmm. because Issa's book was coming out the week that my proposal was going to be shipped out. So her book didn't even couldn't even count because it was so new. Right. Yeah. And other black women essay collections had not done well. And my agent was like, let's not put those in there because if you have books in there that did not sell well, they're basically, you have to argue how yours will do different, which no. So you want to put books that have won. So I, didn't, I couldn't put any black women books in it. So when my proposal went out, 
editors considered my proposal, my, my book to be risky. Hmm. Because black woman, blogger, some people might know her, but she ain't famous. She can't sell nobody units. Eh, nobody go buy this. Eh. So they didn't consider my book a big book. So when my book was acquired by Holt, my advance was hella low, super hmm. low. Because they were like, eh, we just throw this money at it. It's not a big book, but it's cool, right? So I knew off jump, I was like, oh, my, my, my work with this book needs to be where, one, I need to prove all the people wrong who said it was too risky. Two, I need to make sure that I also prove that Black women sell and read books. Right. And then three, I want it to be easy for somebody else to be like, I'm going to walk into a publishing house and get the deal that I deserve because Lovey's book did well. So I had all types of access to grind. I had all types of points to prove. So it put a battery in my back because I was like, oh, okay, bet, got you. Let's run this book out. Like, I want this book to be on everybody's like mouth. I want this book to be on all of social. I need this book to do well. Like, it's actually beyond me at this point. Wow. So I had wow. this battery in my back. So when I finished the book, I went straight to like, all right, so how am I going to market it? So the whole process from start to finish, from like what my cover looked like, I was like, I'm hyper specific. I need to make sure this is representing me in all ways. Hmm. So I was super specific. Like I'm the one who came up with the idea for Judgy Pop. It was like, I need something on my cover. I actually said, I didn't want me on the cover. I, I fought to not have my picture. That's on the right. Cover. You're not on the cover. Yeah. It's that, that, it's that Judgy Pop. Yeah. That's by design. I was like, I don't need to be on the cover of this book because I want other people to pick this up, not just black women. The moment you put a black woman on the cover of a book, it's a signifier to everybody else that if you're not a black woman, this ain't for it's you. Not be I, was for like, me. Yeah. I was like, no, no, no. I want somebody to walk up to this book in a bookstore, not knowing who Lovey Ajayi is and be like, let me read this back. Oh, okay. Let me buy it. And that's exactly what happened. Me not being on the cover of this book changed everything about it. Like Clever. book two, I'm still not on the cover of book two because I'm making it a point to be like, y'all don't need me on the cover. Like I'm not necessary as the face. Y'all know my face once you see my name because there's only one lovey. Shout out. Um, I know that one did contact. I know that's right. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But um, yeah, like so when the book was about to come out, I called it all my favors. I typically don't ask anybody for help. I'm team. I do myself. Oh, I one, know that struggle. Humble, humble yourself. On this one, I was like, this is bigger than you. Ask for help. Mm. I'm, I'm calling people like, look, this book is coming out. I need this book to do well because I need somebody else to allow this book to be the thing that allows them to get a six-figure check that I didn't get. Mm. Right. So I'm talking, people rose up to the occasion. Folks was buying copies. People pre-ordered. The, the, the moment people got the advanced copy, they posted it on social like, yo, I got this book. This is so lit. And the thing is also because I wrote the book that I was proud of, the book that I knew was good. It was easy for people to vouch for me because I'm not going, it's going to be hard for you to vouch for trash, right? If it's not good, even you would be like, I don't even want to post it. So exactly. I didn't also want to put anybody in that position. So I was like, I know this book is good. I know this book is something worthwhile. So it's going to be, I want it to be easy for you to want to loud it. So yeah. when people got the book, they read it. They're like, yo, this book is hilarious. I'm definitely posting it. They posted it. All of social media, the judgy pops. I wrote the social media campaign for it, the digital campaign. Like, yo, so when the book came out on September 13th, 2016, by the time it came out, it was already on second print. 
Wow. Wow. Because so many wow. people had wow. ordered it more than they That's thought would amazing. Order. It was on second print. And then usually the, the New York Times list comes out the Wednesday. Books, books come out on Tuesdays. New York Times list comes out on Wednesday. So the next Wednesday's list reflects what comes out last Tuesday. So September 21st at 5 p.m., I get a phone call from my um, publicist, my book publicist. And she was like, you're on the list. And I was like, what list? What? Like, she was like, you are number five on the New York Times bestsellers list. I was like, bruh. Like, I was just like, holy smokes. Because that book came out in a week where like a lot of books come out because fall is competitive. That's a right. A lot of big books come out in fall. Fall is competitive. It's actually the hardest time to end up on the times list is if you come out with a book in the fall because there's so much, so many books that come out then. For me to come in at number five, I didn't come in at number 19. I didn't come in at number 10. I was top five, baby. Five, top five, like, baby. Yes. Blue. Wow. My mind like instantly changed my life i called my book uh my my lecture agent my speaking agent i was like yo i just hit the times list he was like and we just doubled your fees instantly my fees Ooh. doubled for speaking just like Ooh. that because of this thing and then like a month later i called my mom and was like so you don't have to go to work anymore i think i can handle both of our bills oh. and that bless you ah, mommy was like you see you see have you read my daughter's book Life medical, school. medical school, which what was what, what was that? Exactly. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, we don't want medical school. We, we don't want medical school. What, what kind yeah. of thing? That's not really cool. Even if she, it's okay like this. Oh my, what an amazing story. Love you know, and one of the things that I wanted to say about what you shared with me is, and this is something that I it's like a broken record at this point, probably in all the episodes, is this concept of purpose. And yeah. what happens when we are aligned with it? Um, you've been following these breadcrumbs for a long time. That's why yeah. I start. I started from the beginning of the story. And if anyone has been paying attention, they can see that you were literally just following the breadcrumbs. When you got to that job that you quit in one day, you were uncomfortable because you were off script. Yeah. That wasn't the blueprint. That wasn't the plan. So you had to go back to the plan. And then from that point on, and I always say this about purpose, it always has to be bigger than you. That's yep. one of the ways you know that it's purpose. Mm-hmm. And so always has to be bigger than you. And and people are going to hear this all the time because I talk, talk about how purpose has to include four, four questions that you have to answer mm-hmm. affirmatively. And that is, am I good at this? Do I love it? Does the yeah. world need it? Mm. And can I use can I use it to sustain myself? Mm. And I dare say, I because people always forget that fourth one because they think purpose is this unsexy thing where you sacrifice and you're not gonna. And it's like, no, that's not how purpose works. Like God is not gonna put something on your heart where you have to then basically barely survive. Like that's just not how right. purpose works. Right. And you can love you can love something and not be good at it, you know. And that, that's that not part. your purpose. <laughs> You can love and be good, but the world doesn't need it. And in your case, what I'm hearing is that you hit all of those four points. And yeah. that is why that is why the destiny helpers came. That is why. Yeah. The, yes, because I always say that when you are on an assignment, which is tied to your purpose, girl, he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows he's like, listen, I already got I already got them lined up. OK, I just need yeah. her to just obey and walk the walk. Obey. I I already got all the people that are going to be helping because I have a reason why this has to execute. You're just one of the, you're one of the, 
you know, pawns in, in a, in a, in a bigger game and, 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 and purpose here. So, so for me, I'm not surprised that at the end of the day, you ended up on the New York times bestseller list because it was all part of the plan all along. And all you did was that you just follow the breadcrumbs all the way and you're still doing that. And the question, and that's what excites me about this is that we have no idea what the real big picture is here. Um, without limited understanding, we really, all we can just do is just show up our best selves show up excellently. Yep. Just like you said, I wrote the best book that I knew I would be proud of. And the rest of it was history. It did the work for you. And what I'm hearing about book two and just the little tease, I, um, I, I, <laughs> I feel like that's about, we're about to go to the next level. So I think this is really exciting stuff. Um, and it's exciting, exciting path that you're on Levy. And, I mean, I, I remember you, I, I mean, I can't get into everything. Those who follow you know, but just in case, you know, people are just getting to know about you through this. It's like, you know, she had a meeting. She went to Oprah's house, y'all. Um, uh, at, some, uh, at some point she was swag surfing on the White House lawn. You can yeah. read about that. Um, something happened with Beyonce. Uh, it, that's right. That's right. There was something. Was there something with Shonda Rhimes? Am I making that up? Uh huh. Shonda, okay. Shonda blurred my first book, and I got a, a TV deal with Shonda before she moved to Netflix when mm-hmm. she was at ABC related to the first book. Shonda mm-hmm. was like a huge fan of mine and has been such like a fairy godmother in that like she put a stamp on my book. Yeah. That like it's still on the book. It is a it is a quote that is on the cover of my book. This book is a That's truth right. writer. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Shana's dope. That's right. Yeah. So all of these amazing things happened because yeah. she trusted the path and the purpose. And a lot of us, when we walk this, and we've talked about some of the challenges and obstacles, it's from yeah. imposter syndrome to fear to all of this other stuff, but it's like, you must persist. And when you persist, I'm yes. telling you, you end up in rooms and spaces and places that you have to understand. It's not even about you at that point. You have yeah. to realize that this is no longer about you. And so that's what I'm hearing from this story. And Levy, I have to then go into this TED talk. Oh Yeah. How did that happen? You know, because we can't, if I, if we go into every magical thing that has happened for you since you decided to follow your purpose, we gonna be here all day. But I got to talk about this TED Talk because where are we now? Are we, are we at 2 million yet? 5 million. Where are we? Oh, oh, look at me. Look at me. Last time I checked. <laughs> last time I checked, though. <laughs> I remember when she hit 1M. I remember when it was 2M and now we're at 5M. We're at 5M. Yes. Tell us about that. Tell us about, tell us about that. How did that opportunity and, and not everybody gets to glow on the Ted talk stage. Lovey. It's not easy. It's not easy to do. Let's just understand that. So tell me about how that opportunity came and how you hit it. How you hit the nail on the head like that. How'd you do that girl? How'd you do that? Because that wasn't about, that wasn't about writing. That was about talking. And, And sometimes writing doesn't translate to talking. Do you understand? So, I'm just trying to understand how you made this what it is. That I TED mean, Talk was crazy. That TED I Talk is another moment. That yeah. I have so many moments of my life that I can point to were catalyst moments. That's right. That like instantly changed my life. Like, and definitely the TED Talk was one of them. And that's because I was offered to do the TED Talk by Pat Mitchell 
So I did the talk in November 2017, but I was originally offered to do the talk and asked to do the talk in May 2017, and I turned it down. Um, Why did you do that? I thought I, thought I was too busy. I was like, ah, I'm on a 10-city speaking tour in that fall. I'm yes. hosting a separate, I'm emceeing and keynoting a separate conference. I already had 11 talks between September 15th and November 15th. Mm-hmm. of that fall 11. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Ted, I know how Ted rocks. Like they're serious about their stuff. Like Ted will be like, focus on our talk, right? Here's a speaking coach. We need to run your talk over and over again. So I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to have no time for that. Like now I can't become up there. Sh- I can't become up there sh- raggedy. So I declined. I was like, I'm, ah, I'd love to do this. Can I have another opportunity to do this? But this one will work. So Pat Mitchell was like, all right. So that September comes and the speaking tour that I was a part of together live was actually going to be doing a panel at Ted. And I was like, Oh, I can't even make that panel. And that's, I'm, that's for a talk I'm, I'm supposed to be doing because I have to be in New York for this speaking engagement that I'm for this conference that I'm emceeing and keynoting. I was emceeing and keynoting the conference. And I was like, wow. I, was like I, don't, I don't have time for that. So I was like, it's yeah. cool. You know, you guys, I'm cheering you on. I wish I could come. I was like, dang, I wish I could go, but I can't. Three weeks before the conference, I get an email from the organizers of the MC, the conference that I'm emceeing, and they're like, here's the schedule. So I see that the only thing that's happening on November 1st, which is the same, which is the first day of TED, was like a v- special VIP meet and greet at the conference. And I was like, oh, you know what? I'll just go to TED to go chair on my friends who are doing this panel. I'll go for that yeah. one day. So I just emailed them for a day pass so I can just go for this one day and bounce and get back to New and get back to New York because Ted was in New Orleans. The conference that I was emceeing was in New York. So I was yeah. like, okay. So I shoot Pat Mitchell an email that I was like, hey Pat, um, I want to come cheer on my friends at Ted. Can I get a day pass? She goes, You can come on November 1st. And I was like, Yeah. She was like, why don't you speak? And I was like, uh-huh. I was like, I mean, I could speak on the panel. And she was like, no, why don't you actually take the stage, the official stage? And I was like, no, that's crazy. That's crazy. She was like, yeah. So I was like, wait a minute. It's three weeks before TED. Everybody else has had a coach for the last four months, five months, really. They've rehearsed their talk. They know this talk back and forward. And you telling me I should come speak. And it's only three weeks in advance. And she was like, yeah. So I'm like, okay, let me get back to you. So I I, I was in my head like, no, I can't mess this up. I, I can't mess this up. Nope. Just decline and just know when to say no. Know when to say no. I would have declined. Yes. Ah, I wrote the email up, a three paragraph email to Pat Mitchell that I was like, oh, Pat, thank you so much for... The, the 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 vote of confidence, but I really take the Ted stay seriously. Like before I pressed send, I was like, you know what? Let me call my friend Unique. So I called. It was like a Sunday night, and I said, Unique. So I'm being asked to do a TED talk in three weeks. I think that's crazy. I'm still doing my speaking tour, so it's not like I have time to sit home and dedicate to like writing a new talk, getting all of it together, you know, memorizing all of this. Everybody else has had four months of prep for their talk. They're going to kill it. Me three weeks before. So unique goes, everybody ain't you. Hmm. She was like, you have been speaking for all these years. You have been on a 10 city speaking tour for this, 
fall. You have been on so many stages this year. That has been your coaching. So shout out to friends who remind us of who we are. Just shout out yes. to friends who remind us of who we are. That's all I have to say about that. Cause she reminded, reminded you of who we are. Yeah. Us power when we don't have some for ourselves in the moment Yeah, and get us together. She was like, so here's the thing. You're going to do this talk. So get off my phone and go write it. Bye. And she hangs up. Oh, wow. Boom. And I was like, well, damn. Okay. So I deleted okay. the email to Pat and I was like, I, I guess I'm going to do it. So the next day I had a trip because I was going to, I was going to another speaking engagement. So Pat emailed me that next morning. It was like, she already knew I was on. She was like, hey, lovey, um, we're going to need your talk, like the script of your talk. Because they they read everything. Like, they'll give edits and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So can you get it to us by Wednesday? I was like, at what point? Because I have to make it on the stage today. I travel back home tomorrow. How are they going to get this on Wednesday? I was just like, all right, I'll try to figure it out. Cause I had another trip on Wednesday because we, this speaking tour was in like 10 different cities. So Wednesday comes, I still haven't written this talk. I jump in the Uber to head to the airport and decide to write a talk in this Uber. So, cause I was like, you know what? Let me just write something, send it to them, have them say it's trash. And they, they themselves would decline me. Hmm. So in this 45 minute trip to, this, to the airport, I write this talk. I get to the airport and I press send an email, send it to the TED team, Pat. And I'm expecting like, by the time I land in whatever city I'm going, they would have read it and been like, you're right. Never mind. We don't want. Mm. I land in the city to them being like, this is fantastic. We have very little few edits. This is great. And I was like, <laughs> how? So then they go, okay, so we'll need you in New Orleans. The the day before so you can rehearse on our stage on the TED stage me I can't I can't make it because I champagne problems I have to accept an award in Chicago the day before so I can only make it to TED really for 12 hours because I have to be out of New Orleans on the last flight to New York which is at 8 p.m. so I was like ah I probably wouldn't even be able to do the talk Pat I'm so sorry we've gotten this far because this flight that I have to leave oh on gosh. is at 8 p.m. out of New Orleans. And if I miss the flight, I will miss the first day of the conference. I'm MC of. Pat goes, we'll make sure you don't miss the flight and we'll make sure you're the opening speaker. So you go up at 6 p.m. You'll be out of this. You'll be off the stage by 6.15. You can be at the airport by 7. So they made me the opening speaker so I can make my flight. So I'm like, yo, every time I look for excuses and reasons for them to be like, we don't want, never mind. They literally was like, no, no, it's good. We good. We'll work around it. Could not rehearse on the stage beforehand. Could not get there a day early. Wrote my talk in an Uber. Freaking like was just could not find anything that they would say no to. So finally, I was like, okay, I just resolved myself to the fact that I'm giving this TED Talk. Again, my freaking weeks, crazy busy, insane, ridiculous. Tuesday is the TED. So my TED Talk is Wednesday. Wednesday. Tuesday comes. I'm right home and I'm like, okay. Okay, I guess I'll memorize this new talk I just wrote. 
So I'm sitting there memorizing. It's at this point, it's evening time. It's not, it's not even like daytime. It's like evening. Okay. Like nighttime. I've barely packed my luggage because I'm going from New Orleans to New York, barely packed. So I was like, okay, I I guess I'll, okay, let me memorize this thing right now. So I'm sitting there going through the talk. I'm not memorizing it because I'm still reading it off the paper. And Carnell is listening and he's like, it feels like it's missing something. And I was like, right, right. It is missing something. Girl, how about I scrapped half of the talk on the spot? I deleted, I was making edits. And next thing I know, I've done deleted half the talk. And I'm like adding stories and I'm adding all this stuff. I'm seeing all, because, you know, I'm tracking changes. All I see is the red paragraphs. Red, because of all the new stuff I've added. That Ted has not seen. Ted has not seen. Mind you, they have my my script because what they do with Ted the final script is going to be backstage in case you forget what you're going to say. So the final, so you always, they need to have all your scripts. So nighttime, it's like at this point, it's midnight. I've scrapped half my talk and rewritten it. And I'm like, okay, I guess I have to now memorize it. Oh my God. I memorized it on my flight to to New Orleans. Like in the morning, I jump on the flight. How? No, no, honestly, I don't, it's like the story is not complete. How, how? No, I sit there on the flight. Uh, how can you memorize? Yeah. My talk was, because mm, I know your brain is tired. That's the first my thing. Brain is exhausted. You're not resting. You're not sleeping. I'm not, my rest. You don't have enough time. Yeah. Rest where? Which kind rest? So I'm sitting on the plane. Usually I sleep on planes. But exactly. So I, I, I was on the plane with my eyes closed. I like read the thing. Okay. Try to get it. And I was just trying to recite certain lines. So I land in New Orleans. And the first thing I have to do is go straight to makeup. Because the panel that I'm on, mind you, that is right before the official program starts, starts at four. I get to New Orleans at 11. Because I still have to step on stage for a 15-minute rehearsal that I still haven't done yet. So I go, <laughs> I go straight, my luggage here. Okay, go to makeup. I go to makeup. They're like, all right, we're gonna take you to the stage, memorize. I mean to, to rehearse. I still have my iPad in my hand because I don't have this memorized. I do not have this memorized at all. So I'm on stage basically reading what I said. And I was like, oh, by the way, I have a new script. Here you guys go. They're like, oh, okay. I'm changing. What's on my presentation live? I'm like, yeah, no, remove that slide. I don't need that. Okay, remove that slide on the spot, right? This is before, girl, I get off the stage and they're like, this is amazing. And I'm, meanwhile, I'm over here like, I just read the whole thing off the iPad. I did not have it memorized. I did not. not I was not confident that I had it memorized. I was just like, well, you know what? A bitch is going to look good at the minimum. I, I, I might bomb on stage tonight. But I'm a you did look good. I'm so stressed out by this story, by the way. Oh. I am literally, I'm so stressed out right now. <laughs> like, I'm so, <laughs> I'm like, you never know what the backstory is. Because you know how many times I've listened to that talk? And you wouldn't know? I, do you, and I wouldn't know a thing. So check it. So I'm nervous. I don't typically get nervous when I do talks anymore. I'm nervous in a way I haven't been in years. I'm over here sweating like, bro, what am I going to do on the stage? This is a brand new talk I've never given. I haven't really rehearsed it without in my iPad. I have not done this talk in at no point full by itself with me. Just, I have not really rehearsed this talk and I'm about to get on the stage. Jesus, please, please, please just 
be with me, all right? Because I don't know how this is going to go. So I step on stage after Pat Mitchell. It's 6.05. Deborah Cox sings to, to kick off Ted. It's 6.05, and they call me up. Pat Mitchell introduces me, and I step onto this. I'm mic'd up, step on the red Ted rug, and my mic falls off. <gasps> the back of my pants. That is the first thing that happens when I step on this stage and everybody's watching me. Spotlight is literally on me. And my mic falls off. So I had to pause and the sound guy has to walk out, fix my mic, and I'm standing there in front of people. It's all right. It's all right. (laughs) And I was like, well, how y'all doing? (laughs) That kind of helps. That kind of helps. That kind of helps a little bit. Yeah. And then I started the talk. Hmm. It was an out-of-body experience. Because hmm. the talk that you saw is the talk I gave. There were no pauses. There was no editing magic. There was no point where I ran backstage and was like, oh, what was the rest? Of, what was I supposed to say? No, it was like the words flowed out of my mouth as if I'd given this talk 15 times. And this was my first time ever doing it. There were no hiccups. There was no like, <sighs> the talk you saw was the talk I gave. There was no, and, and and Ted tells you, we can edit if you make a mistake. I did not make one mistake. I didn't stumble over one word. I didn't say, um, it was like I've been giving this talk for the last year. It was like, I knew this talk back and forward, but I had never given it before. This was brand new in this way. Girl, it was an out-of-body experience that I couldn't even explain because I'm like, if y'all don't understand that, like, I just wrote this thing yesterday, really. I didn't even know this talk three hours ago. I didn't even realize I knew it right now. It was magic. And I, that, I was like, there's some ordained anointing. I was just, just going to say, lovey, that I don't want to take this, like, I'm not trying to go in the spiritual angle, but I will because if it goes back to what I said earlier about if you are on an assignment, right, that God, higher power, Jehovah, however you refer to him or her, has for you to do, it is actually not just bigger than you. It's actually outside of you. It's beyond yes. you as well. Yes. And what you are describing to me, for me, doesn't really make like logical sense. Like if I were to apply logic to it with everything you said that like, I would have expected you to stumble. Maybe like you said, even a, um, you're, there were, I listened, there were no ums. It sounded like you had been memorizing this for weeks. That's what I thought you did. I thought that you had been coached and you had gone through all of this. And so for this to pour out from within you and you don't even know how, and then not only that to have had 5 million views tell me that that was not an assignment let me tell you million it even continued right after i finished the talk and i said thank you and i i ran off the stage because i remember i still have this flight the stage manager stops me and turns me around and says i need you to go see this standing ovation that you're getting and i go back on stage and everybody's on their feet and i have the picture of people on their feet because they took pictures of the whole thing just like yes bruh I was like, what? I ran back off stage. Pat Mitchell grabs me and is like, that was amazing. Thank you. My luggage was already in the car. I take the mic off. I jump in the car, head to the airport, being like, I cannot believe what happened. So here's the thing about TED too. When you do your talk at a TED conference, they don't tell you when it's going to be posted. 
They said it is it is up to them to figure out when that will be. It could be in a week. It could be in a month. It could be in eight months. It could be never if they don't like it. Right. It's not ever guaranteed to be posted. A week later, I get an email. Hi, the TED team is, has decided to feature your talk on the homepage on December 1st, one of their biggest days. I was like, holy smokes. December 1st comes. My, I'm front and center in my yellow blazer on TED.com. I took all types of screenshots that day. I have so many screenshots of just like the TED. I remember. I remember. I remember. And that talk has changed my life. I get a speaking engagement because of my TED talk at least once a week. I get people who hit me up from all over the world because of that talk and say like what it made them do different. I've had that talk transcribed into 22 languages. Like it has. So I just have these moments in my life and in my career where it could have gone different. I could have said no. And then I wouldn't mm. have the thing that comes from it. Like I, mm. I said no to that thing three times. And he was like, God was like, no, 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 no. I need Get you to do it. this thing. This, this thing is necessary. I, it's gonna, it's part of my plan for you. And, and I did it and it was seamless. And it was like, oh, wow. Okay. And yo. Okay. You must be, okay. you must be in a big I, I keep using that word. It's something I'm still learning, but it's a, tr- it keeps popping up. It's, I don't know if it's the word for the season, but obedience and just in spite. And I always tell folks that I am one of God's stubborn children. I I will obey, but I'm so difficult about it. I'll be asking questions. (laughs) Why I got to do it? Is it now? Now, though? Like, you give me some time. I just need some time. And it's like, and at some point you, you go into autopilot. I don't know how else to explain it other than that, but it's just that he closes all doors for excuses and you find yourself with no other option. And then in spite of the fear and in spite of the hesitation and everything, you're just like, I think this is what I'm supposed to do. And then it turns out, you know, I remembered even when I launched the bloom, you know, which was, I I didn't know that what I, that it was a bit, it wasn't until after that lovey, I got so many emails from people that were like, how, why would you do that? And I was like, do what? They were like, you had a small event with all those women and you didn't think that this was something that could have filled an auditorium. I was like, it didn't even cross my mind because (laughs) I'd asked them and they said small. And I didn't even, I I just didn't, I think I thought people were busy for Christmas. I had so many emails that were like, this was bigger than you thought, you know? And so sometimes even when I am just, and I remember when I asked you if you guys could do it, I remember thinking, you know, I'd be fine if she says no, you know, because they're here for vacation. But I didn't really have a plan. Otherwise, I just was like, hmm. But something just told me to do it. And 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 this whole journey with the bloom and you're, you know, like I said, you're giving me food for thought that I will think about some more. It's just that everything that I have been doing so far has just been me following the breadcrumbs. I don't know where it's yeah. going, you yeah. know. Um, but each time I look around, there's destiny helpers or there are people that say yes to when I ask yep. for, you know, support and I, I just keep going and I'm, I'm reluctant. I'm still calling it a pet project and a passion project, but here I am interviewing Lovey and interviewing all these other amazing women. Cause I just feel like it's part of the assignment that I have to do in this season. And so yes. let's talk about the role of faith in your life. What's faith to you? Faith is a grounding force. It is mm-hmm. the anchor Because, you know, for me, I feel like faith is my excuse to understand that, like, nothing is 
by accident. It is, mm. it creates something to rest in if there feels like there's too much chaos. Mm. So yeah, that's what faith is for me. It For me, I am from a praying grandmother who prayed for three mm. hours every night, whose mm. prayers I believe still cover me. And yeah, it's, 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 it's a life force. That's right. That's right. I know you bring it up. You bring it up often on social media about your faith. You have that playlist that we all. Yes. My gospel playlist. Yes, 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 yes. What, what, what's your identity? What do you identify as? Like if somebody says, who are you or where are you from? Cause that was one of the questions that I struggled with the most as a immigrant in the U S was when people say, cause there's a difference between, you know, um, like who, what do you identify as versus where are you from? Where are you right. from would oftentimes lead me down this rabbit hole of, well, I'm from Nigeria originally, but I grew up in North Carolina. And then I, and you're just like, I don't even know what the answer is to this question. Right. But if you ask, if you ask me what my did, like, you know, what do you did? I would say I'm Nigerian. That was how I was. What, what do you say? Um, few things. I say I'm a black woman. Mm-hmm. I'm Nigerian. I'm Chicagoan. Mm-hmm. America mm-hmm. usually comes last. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I am a black woman through and through. Yeah. Um, I'm a Niger girl through and through. Um, yeah. yeah, I think I think I rest in those identities very mm-hmm, easily. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Th- that's what I. That's where I call home for me is is in blackness and in Nigerianness. Mm. So where are you from? Yeah. Ooh, where am I from? I'm from Chicago. I'm from Nigeria. I'm from because you know like. I'm Nigerian by blood, by culture, but I'm yeah. also hella Chicago too. Like that's right, that's right. When you, I, I mean, when you're there from nine years old, that's like what else is it supposed Chicago to be? Right, home, yo. And a lot of times, sometimes people will be like, "Yo, you super Chicago, yo." So I'm all of that, and I think I'm good with being all of that. Sometimes we we think yeah. we have to identify ourselves as one thing and just no. that one thing. I'm like, no, 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 no. home is everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, many things. Global citizen. I'm a Nigerian. I'm a You're third you know, third culture kid. Third culture. Third I'm culture. a Shai, I'm a Shigerian. Yes, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Afropolitan. Remember when that word came out? Afropolitan. Um, yes. <laughs> what are you most fearful of? Are you fearful of anything? Absolutely. I'm always scared of something. Shit. Mm. I, I, my book, The Fear Fighter Manual, is really mm. to me that I'm letting other people read. Hmm. So all my fears are on display, but my thing is I don't expect myself to stop being afraid. I expect Hmm. myself to charge forward anyway. So I'm afraid of success. I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of, you know, not being liked. I'm afraid of, of, um, I'm afraid of a lot of things. I think the difference is just that I don't let the fear stop me. I don't define my actions by whether I'm scared or not, because I feel like my life is a series of doing things, especially when I'm scared, right? And seeing all the amazing rewards that come from it. And that's been the beauty of my journey is that with all the hiccups, I can always pinpoint the time I was afraid and then moved anyway, and what came because I moved. So that keeps me going. They can't see my hand movements here, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's just me. It's just me catching the spirit. That's all that was. Because I, when you drop it, I, I catch it. When you drop it, I catch it. I catch it. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is, that was a very powerful thing you said. 
about moving through the fair. So Levy, I'm going to ask you this, and I'm I'm looking forward to your book, The Fair Fighter Manual, because yeah. and I love the fact, and I love the fact what I like and what I honor most about you, and I say this about you all the time in rooms that you're not in, is that there's something very authentic about you. And I think people recognize that. And you touched on it because when, again, to connect the dots, you said when you started this journey, you did it because you were you had no expectations. And so you were speaking with your authentic voice. You were like, listen, it's either you like it or you hate it, but I'm not here to, I'm not trying to sell y'all anything. And so that authenticness, and I think people respond to that. I'm not that I think, I know that they do. It's, it's a human thing where when we see something that's real, we recognize it and we latch onto it because so, so much around us is not real. And so it's rare to see that. And what I also like about your authenticity and your realness is something you did most recently, and you may not even recall this, but when you did pass the mic and I was on there, you had a moment where you said, I'm nervous. And oh, I yeah. feel, you said, I feel way out of, I, I forgot the, the words you used, but basically you were saying that you felt way out of your comfort zone and, but you wanted to take a moment to acknowledge how you were feeling and you were doing this with like everybody on there. So mm-hmm. I was just like, I was like, you know what, this is, this is it. This is the part of the formula is to acknowledge that the fear exists, the nervousness, all of that, to be vulnerable enough to share that because people are going to relate to that. Cause I'm like, yeah, girl, I can understand why you, you know, but everybody was like, you got it, you got it. <laughs> and next thing you know, it's like, you're off, right. You're off. Right. right. And that, and the, and the, the fair, we don't, we don't hear it. We don't see it. What if you hadn't told us, we wouldn't have known, but right. just taking that moment. And the same thing you've now said about your book is to say, this book is really to me, but I'm just letting y'all read it. So I'm not saying that I have all the answers, but this is what I have been doing. And this is what I know to be true on my journey. And I just think that is the gift that is you is that you speak to us from a place where it's not so much that you're preaching or you're saying, I know this, you're just saying, these are my observations, you know, and I'm gonna keep it real as real as I can. And people really relate to that. So I just have to to give you that. Um, What's your dream for Nigeria? Yeah. What's my dream for Nigeria? The Nigeria recognizes its power and moves with that. Like I, I, I'm expecting so much more of Nigeria than Nigeria currently represents itself as. And I'm mm. hoping that we really understand that we are a global power. Nigeria is a global mm. power that needs to start acting like it. Yeah. And not just by yeah. name alone. We, you know, we say Nigeria de Carilas, but sometimes Nigeria Carilas because we aren't showing up in the way we should. We aren't caring mm-hmm. for each other in the way we should. We're not using mm-hmm. our resources in the way we should. So, yeah, that's my hope for Nigeria, that it recognizes its own power and starts acting like it. And I, I say that all the time because I think sometimes there's a quote that says the easiest way we give up our power is by believing that we don't have it. Fact. And and I think that a lot of the youth, because this is a predominantly youth, the demographic here is majority youth. Super young super young and I don't think they realize the power that they have to really change things should they want because they've been told and they believe that they don't have the power to elect someone that they want to see, you know? So it's, it's, it's very powerful thing that, that you said. Now I want to talk to you about mental health care and Uh, African women. I know you're very passionate. Again, something you're very vulnerable and open about, is that journey that you've been on. You've already mentioned it at least once or twice on this interview about therapy. And it's something that I'm really trying to push 
and have conversations around because I really want to spread the gospel because here in Nigeria, and I would dare say many African countries, it's still so taboo. We're only just now starting to kind of warm up to it. And I think that's probably my generation and, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, but, but tell us about, and I, and I don't know if this ties to your, I was going to ask you what your favorite form of self-care is. I definitely feel like there, I feel like therapy is one, if I were to venture a guess, but maybe you have another one you want to share with us, but yeah, tell me what therapy means for you and why you think it's important for not just a black woman, because I think We do have, you know, Black women obviously struggle with it too, culturally, but there is a deeper cultural struggle with it as a Nigerian, as an African, to say it's like, oh, you got to be crazy. And we also don't trust one another. They don't want to talk to therapists here because they don't want them to tell their business, you know, that kind of stuff is happening. So how do we work around this? Yeah. I think... um... Therapy is important because we just all carry a lot of baggage that does not belong to us. And honestly, Mm. some baggage that does belong to us, we still need to drop it too. And I think therapy Mm. is just a way to work it through and, and understand that like, it does not, you will just be dragging around something that will keep you from doing what you're actually supposed to do, which is soaring. You know, you've used the idea of having wings, but if you have the world's biggest wings, but you're, tied down by all this weight, you still can't fly. So I think therapy is a place where you go to go drop your baggage. Hopefully you Mm -hmm. leave some of that baggage behind and you don't pick it back up when you leave. Um, Mm -hmm. And for me, I think it's a preventative measure, right? Like people are thinking like you go to therapy when you have a mental breakdown. No, no. Maybe you go to therapy to prevent you having a nervous breakdown or, you know, just how about this? Sometimes good is not good enough. Sometimes you need to be better than you are. And I think therapy is an opportunity to get there. And I've been in therapy for three years. I think I've been going to therapy. Yeah, three years. And it's, it's, a, I definitely realize that it's a luxury. Uh, I, you know, it I don't want to take yeah. away. It's a privilege. I have to say that because oftentimes when I think of referring people to therapy, I also have to ask, can they afford this and how often can they go? You know, so I do realize that, but I even tell people, even if it's counseling and no tea, no shade, I'm not trying to come for the pastors. You know, we're a highly religious society here in Nigeria and pastors do serve, I think, to a certain point. But I think pastors we have to are be not therapists. They're, they're not therapists, y'all. Like they're, pastors they're not- are not therapists. And honestly, for people who are like, oh, my God, how can you be Christian going to a, a therapy? Well, isn't the same Jesus who created uh, tools for us to use the same one who would create therapy for us to use as a tool? Like, I don't understand. Exactly. People really often um, will struggle with the intersection of like faith and science. But I'm like, yeah. okay, God created science, right? Like, right. I don't understand why we would think that he would somehow be offended that we are going to seek out extra help. I think it would actually be in our best interest to glorify his name by making sure we are not living in constant trauma. Hmm. Mm. Hmm. Oh, yes, 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 yes. You said a word. Thank you for that. I'm just so. We're winding down. So some of the other questions I have, you know, I was going to ask you if you feel that you've discovered your purpose. And I feel like we've already answered that question. It's very (laughs) clear. Everything you're doing is, is you are, you are in alignment, lovey. And I think the results are what we are looking at 
because you know, the Bible talks about it's, you know, by their works. And so yes. we can see the works. We know that you are aligned and we, we are seeing the results of that. Um, what's your favorite Nigerian food and can you cook it? Ooh, favorite. You know what I eat all the time? Which one? I, Dizana stew, Ayamashi. Hey, I, I didn't know that. I love my, my own is just regular rice and stew and dodo. Like that, that, those three things, I can eat it for like a year. Rice, ayamashe, and dodo. Ah, and you can whip up a good one. No, I can't. Ayamashe is okay. <laughs> no, is that no. the one you said? You, no, it was seafood okra that you had delivered. Ah, yeah. So I still have uh, ayamashe delivered too. So I eat that all the time. If I, I would eat it every day, every day. It's so good with the boiled eggs and so that's that's a nice yes. one. That's a nice one. You have to you have to finish it with the boiled egg inside the stew. You understand? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Tell me a book that transformed you, other than yours. <laughs> um, the Broke Diaries, Angela Nizzle. I read it when I was in college, and it was the okay. first book that I read that ever made me laugh out loud. And the Broke it, um, Diaries. Mm-hmm. It was about her college when she was broke in college. She had a blog and she actually wrote about. So the book is a series of her blog entries. And I remember sitting on the bus when I was in college and cackling and people looking at me like, whoa. And what it did was it taught me that this was possible. Like I can make yeah. a laugh with my words and it could look like this. So it was really interesting because I had just started blogging and Angela ended up becoming a mentor to me. So it was kind of wild. And yeah, that book is amazing. It's funny. Amazing. Broke Diaries, y'all. That's a good one. Um, what's your guilty pleasure? Ooh. Probably listen to Nigerians. <laughs> <laughs> me and Tosi be in there just gisting about the shenanigans that's happening in Nigeria. She keeps me up to date. Y'all, we have a chat group. <laughs> and we're trying to we're trying to institute like a weekly schedule to this so that no. we can all gather and talk about all my Nigerian people know it's like a, it's like yeah. a film. Nigeria yes. is a film. Lagos especially is a film. It's a whole film. Yes. So yes. sometimes that we need to lighten things up. You know, the world is real heavy right now. We'll just slide up in those DS or the chat group and we just go for broke. It's funny. My people make me laugh. That's just the truth. <laughs> yeah. We are if you, if you, if you don't think about it too much, it's actually very, we're very funny people. We're very, very funny. So no, that is a guilty pleasure for sure. It's a pleasure. Um, what's your self-care practice other than therapy being one of them? Is there any other thing that you take, that you make sure you focus on? In when the world is your... back, going to yeah. the spa. Listen, my back is so out of alignment right now. I'm so desperate. I don't know what I'm going to have to do. Yvonne brought this um, massage. It, it, it was it's like a whole machine. It, 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 you got to oh, use two hands. The, the, yeah. The, the therapy gun? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, the gun. I need to get it off of Amazon. Yeah, thank you for reminding me. There yeah. There's a therapy gun, y'all, on Amazon, and it does something that I have never felt before. It just takes all the knots out. So I actually need amazing. to place an order for that. It is amazing. So my, any good shows that you're watching right now? Anything that's distracting Ozark. you when you're not working? Ozark is, listen, a, addictive, addictive. What season are you on? Oh, I finished. Oh, isn't it Crick Girl? That last episode, listen. Everything. I, I was actually kind of mad at COVID because I was like, see, now we're going to have to wait like two years for this to, to see. <laughs> because the way the film is scheduled. 
They just announced oh, like really? the last season is going to be 14 episodes. When are they going to start filming? They probably don't know. I mean, I know some parts it's of like LA have started. Yeah, it's such a good show. That's a good yeah, one. I'm ready. I'm ready That's- for that. He's brilliant. I really appreciate his direction in that, um, Jason Bateman. So last question, uh, Lovey, and this is one of my favorite ones, um, and it's two-part. And it's one, what sort of parting thoughts do you have for your Nigerian sisters, something for them to hold on to, to remember from everything? I mean, like I said, this whole conversation is scattered with gems and pearls that I hope people will pick up on. But, you know, what would be sort of a closing thought uh, that you would like to leave, you know, us women with, and not just Nigerian women, you know, African women in general, knowing that we deal with different sort of cultural constraints and challenges yeah. that are unique to us. And then lastly, the second part of the question is, what would you like your legacy to be? Ooh, okay. So the first yeah. thing is, I always want to just encourage people like, your voice is important. And oftentimes we think we don't have power or we think we're not doing enough or we think we want to do something different. I want us to start with what is accessible, right? What is right here, which is our voice. And I I always want to encourage people to speak the truth, thoughtful truths in whatever room that you're in. Because even that, if we all committed to doing that, would be deeply helpful to all of us as a society, because it means we'd be challenging what's not okay. We'd be showing up in the best way possible. So I actually created a free truth telling guide that people can download. That's right. Be the domino.com. They can go download it because I walk people through, like we're always constantly afraid of this worst case scenario of it all, but what if that doesn't happen? So I want people to go download that truth telling guide. So be the domino.com. And then when I am no longer here, I Mm. want people to feel my absence and to say that the world was better because she was here. Hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's really what legacy is about is it's not so much about sort of it's, it's about people feeling your absence, knowing that, you know, something, something that was here that made us happy or joyful or made an impact is gone. And so whatever we do, and I say that to people all the time when it comes to purpose and legacy is that it doesn't have to be something that changes the whole world. It doesn't have to be something that's that everyone knows about or you become a celebrity behind it. You know, it's, it's not about that. It's just about making sure that whatever it is you do, you do it so well and you do it according to what you know you've been called to do. And you do it in a way that when, like Levy just said, when it's all said and done, people say, my God, you know, what a wonderful spirit that was. And we're going to miss her, you know, and this is yeah. this is it. So, you know, do enough so that people know when you are no longer in the room. And so that's yes. a very powerful, that's a very powerful thing that you are are leaving with us. So Levy, again, thank you. I always tell all the women that I interview that I honor them just for who they are, for existing and existing brightly, unapologetically, and then forgiving of their time um, to this project that I'm working on, which again is just to amplify the voice. I'm so excited for. I'm just trying to amplify the voices. You know, I'm like, why do I have to, when I go on Google, I can't find, I can't find a place where we all are scattered, you know? So I'm hoping that when all of these voices start to come together, that there will be a clearinghouse where you can just go and hear these powerful stories of African women doing things beyond 
um, beyond our home and making us proud, you know, and inspiring us even from across across the oceans, you know. That's so thank, thanks again, love you. Thank you so much for your time because it is so valuable and I am grateful for it. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate thank you for having you. me, boo, in the world. Yeah. Voice G and you are definitely not having a pet project. The Bloom Africa is on this <laughs> I'm buying myself time. I'm buying my, okay. I'm getting there. Yeah, right. I'm getting there. I'll tell I'll tell a story like yours one day. I'll be like, there was this mind oh, shifting yeah. that happened and I realized this was no longer a pet project, you know? And so definitely. Thanks for the encouragement always and for the support. I do appreciate I that. You tell me to come. Thank you, lovey. Love it. Ah. Yeah, much appreciated. <laughs> yeah, much appreciated. Yeah, much okay. <laughs> Tosin Durutoye, and you've been listening to Life in Bloom, a podcast brought to you by the Bloom Africa. You can join the Bloom Africa community by following us on Instagram at the Bloom Africa or on our new club on Clubhouse. It's called The Bloom or by visiting www.thebloomafrica.com to join our listserv. I can be found on Instagram and Twitter at Tosin Durutoye. Don't forget to share, rate, and give us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening. Until next time.